Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Long Shot Podcast. I am your host, as always, Duncan Robinson, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague and co-worker and co-host, Davis Patrick Reed. What else? What else am I to you? Come on, let's rattle off a few more things. Uh, we're co-people. We're co-friends. We are yeah. uh-huh. uh, co-once-upon-a-time teammates. The list goes yeah. on and on. Uh, now, actually, I don't know if we're co-workers. I think in, in some way, shape, or form, you're my subordinate. I think that could be painted <laughs> in that way. No. I, I'm not going to go and, and say that, but I think uh, from a technical standpoint, if you wanted to really get down to the nitty-gritty of things, I mean, I guess we could say that. Without the audience getting too involved into our pockets, I think by definition that might be true, but I'm still not going to stand for it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, we'll lean more into like the, you know, co pilots. We're co pilots of this thing. How about that? Co pilots. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. It, it, that actually really ties into the uh, compass metaphor that we've kind of been pushing these last couple of episodes. You really uh, feel of course, good about I that. I don't actually, I do. I love that. Uh, I don't actually uh, think of you as my subordinate. I, I think of you very much as my my coworker and my co-creator uh, of this this masterpiece we call the Long Shot. We're back for another episode. We have a fantastic guest in Patrick Connington, a dear friend of the pod. We've been trying to get him on for quite some time. Finally, uh, got around to doing so, and I think you guys will be better off because of it. I really do. How many people in professional sports are drafted by two leagues, two of the big four? This guy's drafted by the MLB and the NBA. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. We get into his story a little bit, him having the option to take millions of dollars as a high school kid to go play baseball. But instead he said, no, I have a dream of being drafted into the NBA. And so I'm going to go do that. And he did. And now he's an NBA champion. It, uh, it, it certainly worked out for him. Uh, I will say that. I also want to point out, a lot of people have been reaching out to me and saying that I need to start every segment of the podcast with hello and welcome. And I think some of the confusion is getting lost in the fact that we release our interviews on YouTube on Thursday. We release those first because that's kind of like the meat and potatoes. We release mm-hmm. our what we call our front of show, this right here, this little back and forth banter. We always release it on Friday. Now, chronologically... It doesn't make any sense. And I actually pushed back on this. But Davis was out of it that this is what 
needed to happen and how it needed to happen. Now, if you listen to the the podcast, which we realize a vast majority of a majority of our community actually watches instead of listens, but if you listen, then then the whole episode makes sense. It, it goes front of show into the interview and everything chronologically makes sense. But I just felt like we had, you know, we'd gone 40 whatever episodes, 37 episodes, whatever, and not even addressed that. That Thursday we released the interview and Friday we do the front of show. Yeah, I, I think it's just like you said, lead with the meat and potatoes. We, you know, Pat Connaughton is a very interesting guy. We talked to him for an hour. We're going to get that to the people. You and I just kind of bullshit on here for 20 minutes a week. So we, we follow with that on a, on a Friday. That's Friday content. It leads you into the weekend. Dave, before we get to our conversation with Pat, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think our job here is just to touch on a, uh, you know, NBA storylines that are going on. So it feels disingenuous if we don't, if I don't ask you about the Ben Simmons and Kyrie stuff. It's all I see on social media. It's amazing how like the NBA community becomes so entrenched in this drama. Uh, I don't know how serious the drama is if you're in the Sixers facility or if you're in the Brooklyn facility, but from the outside, it seems like these are such hot topics. It was just so interesting to me that Doc is asked about the Ben Simmons showing up in Philly after the preseason game a couple days ago. And his response is, yeah, I mean, I'll have to talk to Woj. And we've talked about that on this podcast before, but it's just insane that as fans, we're getting updates on this, again, drama almost before the franchise even is. Like we know Ben is in Philly before Doc does, or, or it's simultaneous. It's just, it's such a weird phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, these are the two headlines that have absolutely dominated preseason thus far. And it, in actually kind of an interesting way, uh, they've like played off of each other, right? Because like for a couple of days, Kyrie will have the headline and then all of a sudden some news will break with Ben. You know, he's back in Philly and then that'll grab the headline and then everyone's talking about that. Uh, I mean, they're they're both tricky situations. You know, the, the, the Ben one, I will say it doesn't necessarily surprise me that he's back in Philly, mostly because he's losing serious dollars out of his pocket for every single hour, every single day that he's not uh, reporting. And you know the Kyrie one is is a tricky one as well. I mean, I I understand uh, the standpoint of it's 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 his choice, and I also understand Sean Marks coming out and saying. You know, we, we don't want people that are just playing on road games. We want someone who's going to be fully committed and be around. So I'm interested to see how both situations play out. To be honest with you, like, I don't have any sort of hot take or inside scoop. Uh, you know, similarly to, to a Doc Rivers, I mean, I'm just kind of taking the information as it comes and just kind of seeing how it all plays out. Yeah, I, I just, I think it's so interesting that, you know, it's such a hot topic to talk about player empowerment in this era of basketball. Like, do players have too much power? James Harden can force his way out of Houston. AD can force his way to LA. Like, is this good for the NBA? And I think what's interesting about both these stories, like you said, they sort of play off each other in this player empowerment discussion. It's like, yeah, look, if you have a really strong stance about your personal choice to get a vaccine, fine, you're entitled to make that decision. But the line is drawn there. Like the Brooklyn Nets have the right to say, all right, Kyrie, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you can't play. Sorry. Same with Ben. If you don't want to come back to Philly, fine, that's your choice. But Philly has the right to now fine you and take your money. And that's maybe where the line is drawn. Now Ben is 
pressure to come back to Philly. So, you know, I just think the debate is where is that line? Is it is is there going to be some time where a player has too much power? It's like we're I think in both of these cases you're starting to see scenarios where it's like, well, no, you know what? It's good that players have empowerment, obviously. I think it's a player-driven league. The NBA is really good about that, giving players the the platform to make those decisions. But there's also a time where the team has the right to draw the line. And I think we're seeing that with both of these guys. Yeah. And, and I also think the line starts to come into play for the player themselves once their own pockets are on the line. And that's just truthfully speaking, like as professional athletes, you have a very short window in which you can make money. And that's why I said it doesn't surprise me that Ben's back in Philly. Now, I think Kyrie is an interesting one because he's kind of shown in in various ways that you know I don't want to say he doesn't care about money but the money and, and losing money I don't think impacts him the same way this is just me you know as a spectator just kind of like calling it how I see it I don't think him losing money impacts him the way it would for a lot of other players so I I think Kyrie is a little bit more inclined, obviously, as we're seeing, to kind of like hold his ground on on this type of issues. Now, whether that's for better or worse, obviously, is is up for debate, and that's not really something that I'm necessarily commenting on. But what I am commenting and kind of observing is that he does seem a little bit more willing to kind of take it there, if you will. Look, I'm not going to – my job – our job isn't to sit here and like, you know – lambast Kyrie but yeah I I just think again it's very interesting if you tie it into this player empowerment discussion but I digress let's get to our reddit question of the day dunk let's shift to basketball a little bit more this comes from Sayar Sayer who asks will shooting get better or worse this season with Wilson as the new game ball so we haven't touched on this yet on this pod but uh with the new Wilson ball, I may be biased. I think the Wilson evolution is the greatest basketball ever created. Uh, but I'm curious, do you notice any difference at all this preseason and, and through camp with the new ball? Uh, a couple things for you there. First off, it's the Reddit question of the week. Uh, pretty uh, pretty disappointing that you messed up your own segment. Uh, two, I strongly reject the Wilson evolution being the greatest ball. I don't understand the hype around the evolution. Incredibly overrated basketball, in my opinion. I understand it's like, it's the men's league basketball. It's what everyone plays with. It's it's the pickup, the rec basketball. Everybody plays with the evolution. In my opinion, it's like almost too soft and squishy. It gets ridiculously slippery when it gets sweaty or wet. All of, a, all of a sudden becomes a greased watermelon. You can't even hold on to the thing. I, I don't understand the Wilson Evolution obsession. It's just one thing that I will never be able to wrap my mind around. So many better basketballs than the Wilson Evolution. Uh, the new Wilson NBA ball, they are trying to push that it's the same. And I'm not here for it. I don't wow. think it is actually the same. Now... I think that players will get used to it and nothing will really change. But if you handed me like blind uh, field test, right, a Spalding and a Wilson, I would 1000% be 
be able to tell the difference. They are not the same basketball. I just want to say that. Uh, originally, it was pushed that, oh, it's the same everything. The only thing different is the Spalding versus Wilson logo, and it's just not. Now, with that being said, I'm not over here interested in making excuses. Uh, I have a little saying that I stole from Jason Williams that I can shoot a beach ball 50%. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Wilson, Spalding, whatever it is, and obviously the, the beach ball 50% is, is you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But anyways, they're different basketballs, but I don't anticipate it being all that different. Wait, so you threw – I have a lot. Uh, to respond to there. You threw a lot at me. First of all, the Wilson evolution was made from a combination of like God and the clouds. So don't disrespect that ball. Um, I get that maybe it gets a little slippery when you get sweaty, but I'm at a point in my career where I'm not getting that sweaty. You know, I'm just, I'm shooting around in an empty gym. So yeah, maybe we're at different places in our career to appreciate the Wilson evolution, but I don't appreciate the Wilson slander. Uh, But I'm very intrigued by, so what is the, can you, Put your finger on what the difference is. You're telling me a blind test of both of these basketballs. You could tell the difference. What exactly is it? Is it something that you're having to adjust to, or is it just minor things that aren't really going to impact the game? So I'm I'm optimistic that at some point Wilson will get them so they feel like the old Spalding. My uh, immediate reactions or short term reaction is that. The Wilson just has a little bit more of like kind of a tackier feel. Uh, the Spalding had this like great feel to it where it just like would really break in really well. Uh, if anybody shot an NBA ball, you you kind of know that the beginning of NBA ball, uh, uh, the beginning of an NBA ball's life is the worst part. But as you wear into it, it gets better and better as you use it. And I haven't found that to be true yet with the Wilsons is, is kind of my big takeaway. Okay. Wow. I'm intrigued. It sounds like you're kind of just teeing up some excuses. If there is like some struggles early for the heat, you can just say, well, it's the Wilson. Well, see, that's, that's what I, I wanted to, to address that. That's kind of where the, the 50% line came in. I could shoot a beach ball 50%, uh, because it, it doesn't really matter. A ball's a ball and the hoop's still 10 feet. Uh, so I, I'm not really all that concerned, but it is different. I just wanted to say that. Anyways, let's get to the long shot feature. This is an incredible opportunity to shout out the Boston Red Sox. Oh, uh, moving on to the ALCS. Nobody really thought they had a chance, Dave. But you know who did think they have a chance? Just a kid from New Hampshire. A kid who just grew up a diehard Boston Red Sox fan, a.k.a. host of the long shot, a.k.a. yours truly, Dr. Robinson. <laughs> It just, it kills me as a Kansas City Royals guy because we had like two years, you know, we had two years, 2014, 2015, where we had playoff runs and it was so magical. And now we're back to obscurity and the Red Sox just have been relevant forever, it seems like. And so it hurts me. Um, yeah, even years where you guys aren't supposed to be good, you upset the race. Also, uh, feels like a good time to shout out our boy, Max Eaton, because big Tampa Bay guy, he was talking a lot of shit in our group chat. And uh, we have a lot of Boston guys in that group chat, so they let them hear it. I feel for you, Max. I'm sorry. I also want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about my Red Sox fandom. Uh, I mean this wholeheartedly. When they won the World Series in 2004, it still is probably a top three day of my entire life. Um, <laughs> I used to be I used to be obsessed with baseball. I was a die-hard Boston Red Sox fan. I used to skip 
school just to stay at home and watch opening day on TV. I was like that wow. level of committed. Yeah, it, it was it was maniacal. Now, now to be honest with you, I, I probably have watched maybe less than ten pitches uh, of of regular season Red Sox baseball. I am incredibly comfortable saying I'm entirely a bandwagon fan. But now they're now that they're in the ALCS, I'm driving the bandwagon. One <laughs> and two. I also think that I've I've actually built up my my fandom equity throughout my life. Like I was such a diehard fan for so long that you know for the last probably let's say. 10 years. I haven't been a fan at all. Uh, but I, I still have that foundation of being a diehard fan. So it's so much easier for me to just turn it on in the playoffs. Makes sense. It's like, it's like KU basketball for me. I was a diehard fan growing up. We've talked about that a little bit, not at all anymore, but they're always going to have uh, a piece of my heart. Have you ever thrown a first pitch out? I never have. I've never been asked. Wow. This, that spiel about the Red Sox feels like a door open, just like a crack door for if anyone hears this that's affiliated with the Red Sox. Can we get this guy on the mound, throw a pitch out? Hometown kid, come on. What? I'd honestly, I'd love to throw a pitch out anywhere, uh, you know, whether it be Marlins, whether it be a, a high school game, you know, just get an inaugural first pitch. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I because. <laughs> Mostly just because I, I just would love to show my stuff out there. You know, I used to pitch a little bit back in the day. Uh, I was a I was a three pitch guy. Uh, had a couple different off uh, off speed stuff. Uh, went went with the circle change. I, I tried mm. to throw curveballs when I was younger and kind of messed up my my uh, elbow. So then I had to transition to a changeup. So I had a I had kind of like a cutter that didn't really cut. It was just kind of like a little bit of a slower fastball. Uh, and then of course I I had a four seam fastball. But that was kind of my pitch repertoire. Uh, wasn't really anything special but if i had the opportunity to throw a first pitch i mean i feel like you got to throw a fastball in that instance but i honestly I, I think i would maybe break out the cutter just to do something a little bit different it's comical that we're talking about being because i was also a pitcher but it's comical that we're talking about our old days pitching when we're about to get to a conversation with pat who's like actually a legitimate pitcher got drafted by the orioles uh so but i also was a pitcher and in middle school i threw a knuckleball and shout out to my dad because he taught me that knuckleball. And how many like seventh, eighth graders do you know that throw a knuckleball? No one had seen it before. And it wasn't great, but every once in a while it was effective. And I would just, I would just loft it in there. It didn't, it would go 50 miles an hour, but it would just throw kids off. So I'd throw it like once every two, three innings. And it was massively effective. Honestly, just for like the confidence, I'd, I'd say rarely it was even a strike, but just the fact that I had a knuckleball in my bag, just, I was built different. So you were the knuckleball kid. I feel like yeah, every yeah. little league in America had one kid that would get up there and try to throw knuckleballs. For the record, I firmly believe that you probably didn't really actually throw a knuckleball just because you put your knuckles on it and threw it doesn't mean it's an actual knuckle. Oh no, no, no. that thing was knuckling. Actually has to knuckle. No, 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 it was. All right. All right. Well, that remains to be seen. We're, we're going to have to uh, you know, put pen to paper and, and and see if you really actually have a knuckleball <laughs> at some point here down the line. Anyways, let's get to the uh, the real picture here. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this uh, this conversation with Pat because we certainly did. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back in to the Long Shot Podcast here with a very, very special guest, a dear friend of mine and of course now an NBA champion, uh, just puts him in a in a, just a whole other echelon. Uh, Pat Connington, welcome to the Long Shot Podcast. It's great to have you here. Appreciate you guys having me. I thought for a while there, you know, it wasn't going to happen with all the back and forth we had, but uh, you know, you'd think with the amount of friendship and I have, and you know, Dave heard a lot about you, but I thought maybe this wasn't good enough content for to make the long shot pot. You Don't know, I I never would want you to think that. You know, we talked about it briefly uh, before we officially went on air, but I, I just want to clear my name uh, publicly <laughs> on a, on a very public platform. You know, we have millions of listeners worldwide. Uh, millions. So, so basically, what happened was. We've reached out to Pat multiple times to get him on. Uh, has been a very sought after guest from the very beginning. A couple, a couple of the times, I will say, uh, you know, we we flaked a little bit. You know, we had other scheduling priorities, and, and that doesn't. That's not to say that that you're second to them. It's just more so, uh, you know, you're a dear friend of the show. Uh, you're a dear friend of mine. We just felt like we could get you on at a more uh, ideal time. And, uh, yeah, look, I mean, look, I'm a businessman. I understand at the end of the day, somebody who's reliable, you can kind of fit them in where they get in as opposed to sometimes you need the bigger names that will only have a certain ability to schedule at certain times. It's not, not bigger. E- it's yeah, not, not e- bigger. That's the thing. It's not even about the names. It's just, you know, some people are just more difficult to schedule with. You know, with you, it's just a it's a simple FaceTime. All I gotta do is pick up the phone, call you, I can get you on the pod. Like I hit you up what two days ago and all of a sudden you're like, Yeah, I'm down, let's do it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I get it. I thought for a while there I was worried that maybe it was the fact that you and I get matched up a lot against each other and um mm. maybe it was because we beat you in the playoffs after you beat us. So yeah, I didn't know exactly what was happening, but I'm glad we finally made it happen and uh, it's an honor to be on the show. It's it's great to have you. Uh, you bring it up. A lot's transpired uh, between the two of us, both on the court and off it. Since you bring it up, though, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks going on to win a championship, I just want to ask, we're, we're in the midst of the preseason right now, how does winning a championship just change the entire tone of preseason training camp? Or maybe it doesn't, but I, I have to imagine that it does. Yeah, I'd say it does a little bit. I'd also say, you know, as you and I experienced, last year was that consolidated season, right? So we started at eight. We had a ton of games in a short amount of time. Playoffs felt way more normal. You actually almost got more days off in playoffs than you did during the regular season. Uh, But we didn't end until, I think, July 20th, July 21st. And so I'd say training camp, because we won, has been a little different, but also based off of when the season ended, and the lack of off-season, getting this season back on track, uh, has also kind of double-teamed it to be a little bit different. And uh, I think, obviously, everyone knows there's a certain amount of expectations that uh, come in after you win a championship and trying to defend the title and the whole thing. But I think what 
we've done a good job of to date and what coaches really, you know, hammered home on us and Giannis even and Chris and Drew is, you know, there is a lot of room for improvement. You know, we didn't have a smooth sailing uh, playoff run. You know what I mean? Like we got down in a lot of the series and we had times where we did not look like a championship team. And so how do we learn from that mistakes and those mistakes and how do we make sure that we're coming out better and we don't have, you know, lackluster uh, sense of urgency around us just because we were fortunate to win the 2021 NBA championship. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've said it a handful of times on this, um, but it, it is crazy to me. And it's not just the NBA. I think it's professional sports in general, but so much of it is a what have you done lately or like league, right? In that you guys just won the championship. Now, like the narrative quickly shifts to are they good enough to repeat? Like you yep. get that you get that short window where you really get to like bask in it, savor it, which you know, knowing you, I, I know you did. I know you did really yeah, get to bask yeah. in it. We just got uh, an even shorter one because the season was a little bit later. Right, exactly. And, and I want to talk about some of the basking, uh, but but before we get to that, did you feel a collect? And, and I know you guys have like a crazy mentality in that locker room, but but was there like a collective? relaxing breath kind of of like okay we've had these championship expectations for you know three four years now and we finally got over that hump yeah i'd say it's it's i would say it was almost more about being able to overcome adversity so we were a quote-unquote championship caliber team uh you know my first year here was the first year we kind of reached that milestone and uh we had the best uh record in the regular season but we dropped a 2-0 series lead to the Toronto and Eastern Conference Finals. And, I mean, look, that year, no one really expected us to be what we were. But the second year of that, then the second year, everyone expects us to be a championship contender. And we had run pace at that point to win, you know, 70 games at one point before COVID hit. And then you go down to the bubble and, you know, we get our butts kicked by you guys. And when we come back, all of a sudden, everybody's on edge. And I kind of made the comment to a few people around the team, like, hey, this has only been a two-year build. Like, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not something that championships don't happen overnight. I would say the goal is to be there to compete for a championship as consistently as possible, to be one of those handful of teams that feel like they're good enough to potentially win a championship uh, and compete for it at the end of the season throughout the playoffs. And I think we were in that position my first two years here. I think we were in that position last year, obviously. Um, but to get over the hump, having gone through the adversity of outside expectations after the first two years, I think gave a breath of fresh air to a lot of the guys that management, coaches, uh, Giannis, Chris, like guys that we knew we were good enough to do it, but it's different to actually do it. And within the locker room, we had the confidence, but – I mean, you know the NBA, like you said, outside and critic, everything that plays a role in our game. And so to silence them for a year and to have done it going into this year, I think it was really important. Yeah. I mean, you hear all the time, like, uh, you know, we got to learn how to handle adversity. We, we got to learn how to overcome setbacks, that sort of stuff. I think so much it's, it's like thrown around as like kind of coach speak and cliche, but I mean, you guys, you guys really went through like dealing with pain 
like what it's like to to be two up 2-0 against the Raptors and lose and then to to play against us not just you know bring that cuz it was me but to play against <laughs> us to play against us in the bubble and have all these expectations that this is a year this is a year and then you know get gentlemen swept uh in the bubble Whoa. <laughs> but like Sorry. but seriously all seriously all jokes aside like going through that pain is what actually prepares you to wrestle with adversity i would think at least that's what i've taken away from from the championship runs that i've been on yeah no 100 percent. i think the funny thing about it is you know in answering questions this year during the championship run there were people the same reporters who asked me questions the first year and the first year my answer was you know you don't need experience because we didn't have experience and at the end of the day you need some experience and experience is going through adversity experience is learning from your mistakes, learning from the things that went wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, when you win a game, do you feel like you have to watch film? Do you feel like a lot went wrong? Like, no, you won the game. Now, when you lose a game, you feel like, I mean, when we got gentlemen swept by you, we felt like we like let the whole city down, right? Because of the expectations that were there. It really wasn't that bad. You know how many close games we had during that series? But like, we didn't win them. So how do you learn from those losses? Because a lot of times in the NBA, you don't learn from the wins. So in learning from that adversity, and I mean, look, you look at it through this uh, this year's playoff runs, we might have got our real sweep in on you guys in the first round. But, you know, the second round, we were down 2-0 to Brooklyn, who was, I would say, vastly favored to be the NBA champions. Uh, the Eastern Conference Finals, we lost game one to Atlanta. Giannis goes down, and he's out the last two games against Atlanta. And then in the finals, we go down 2-0 to the Phoenix Suns, and they looked like they were rolling. So we didn't make it easy on ourselves, but overcoming that adversity to a championship, I think it's that much sweeter because of the adversity we faced my first two years here. Was there uh, – I, I like that you snuck in the sweep. Uh, yeah, I, I caught that. Uh, that didn't go unnoticed. Sweep. I just sneak in the real one. I, I have yeah, a yeah. somewhere over here. I know that that I that was deserved. Uh, is there there's some added motivation in that series from you guys, right? Like, was there revenge on your mind when you see you get the heat in the first round? You know, I think it's unique, right? Guys across the NBA. I mean, Duncan and I are really good friends, but like guys across the NBA, they know each other and they all have their own egos. They all have their own like what they feel is a better matchup versus what they feel isn't a better matchup, and um, who they want to get revenge on versus who they don't. And so I would say. For us, was there a silver lining to playing the Heat in the first round and, and being in a position to knock them out after what had happened the year before? Absolutely. But I think what we talked about in the locker room was it would be short-sighted of us if we were just looking at this as like, a, hey, let's get revenge on the Miami Heat. Like for us, and you know, we talk about different mindsets, and I'm sure we'll get into that here in a little bit, but like we wanted to compete for a championship we happened to get matched up with the Miami Heat. In order to compete for a championship, we had to go through the Miami Heat. It right. wasn't like behind the scenes, we're like, let's lose this game so we can play the Miami Heat and try to you know, get revenge on them. It was basically a, hey, if our goals are to be an NBA champion and to compete for a championship, it doesn't matter who's in front of us, we're going to have to take care of business. That was a, a really strange dynamic if you take it back to those last regular season games because you guys were jockeying for I think it was the two and the three 
Yep. And then we were jockeying for uh, in the 4-5 game or the 3-6 game. And yep. it was this weird thing where we played you guys the second to last game of the regular season, which had seeding implications. And I remember us thinking like, well, there's no way there's no way they want to see us again. Like, are they going to arrest this person? Are they going to arrest that person? And it, it's just so – it's fascinating how an 82-game season, or I guess last year's case, 72, whatever it was, comes down to those final games of this is how it's going to play out. And, you know, I, I remember – Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but like we would have been much better served playing in that four five matchup. Either I think it would have been the Knicks, who we had like swept during the regular season. Um, and it's it's just so interesting how that all plays out. And of course, we end up getting you guys, and you guys have this massive chip on your shoulder to play us again. And then that all right. you know turned out the way yeah. it did. I mean, and that's like I mean, we talk about baseball sometimes. You got one hundred and sixty two regular season games, and all of a sudden it comes down to like one game or there's a wild card where it's one game to win it all after going or to go on to the playoffs after playing 162 games. It's incredible in pro sports to Duncan's point. It was literally the second last game. I remember talking after the game, you and I being like, why, why would we want to win because we play you guys or why would you guys want to lose because I think Jimmy didn't play in order to play us. Like, I don't know. I don't think anybody really wanted to match up with each other. But the end of the day, Somebody had to win the game. Somebody had to lose the game. And it wasn't all on us. It wasn't like if we won, we got you. If you lost, you got us. There were still other games that had to be played where if, like, the Knicks lost or if the Hawks lost or whomever, like, we still may not have matched up. So it's that weird dynamic of control what you can control. Try to look ahead and be smart about who you want to play. But then at the same time, if you're smart about it, you might not get it the way you want it anyway. So it's weird. Yeah, and actually, uh, you uh, you very kindly uh, hosted me for dinner the night before that game, I think. And yeah. uh, we were we were sitting we were sitting around your your dinner table. It was really funny because like neither of us were trying to like you know obviously we're friends, so like there's yeah. banter, but like neither of us were actually trying to give up any information. But we were both like sneakily trying to like get information from the others. So I was like. So, uh, you know, game tomorrow, like, are you guys going to play? Like, is Giannis going to play? Like, what's what's going to happen? That's like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, we'll see. And yeah. like, what about Jimmy? Is Jimmy going to play? And I'm like, I don't know. Because I think Jimmy was, like, questionable at the time. I was like, I yeah. don't know. Like, we'll see. And I think both of us kind of knew what was actually going to happen. But even in that moment, like, neither of us wanted to concede any information. Yeah. And not to mention, like, let's be real. Neither of us wanted to concede information because we're competitive, but also because neither of us are at the top of the totem ball on either of our teams so i'm not <laughs> trying to get in trouble for that <laughs> yeah that and also it's like those guys are going to make their own decisions around what they want to do and the last thing they're going to do is consult me like, like you know jimmy says like i can't go tonight with an ankle he's not like reaching out yeah. to duncan like hey just let you know can't play tonight <laughs> You brought up the the media uh, and how you kind of dealt with questions throughout the, the various years. I want to talk a little bit about media narratives because whether we like it or not, and I think in a lot of cases we maybe don't like it, but they do kind of shape the perspective of players, for better or worse. And I think Giannis is a really interesting example of it because he dominates the NBA, you know, back-to-back MVP, uh, you guys just 
terrorized the regular season two years straight. He's putting up triple doubles, playing you know twenty seven minutes a game because you're just blowing everybody out. But there's still this this narrative around him that he can't win or he's not a winning player. He's not a championship player, which I think everybody who like actually lines up against him doesn't actually believe that. But like, you know, talking heads or whatever are like, oh, he can't get it done. He's not the best player on a championship team. He needs a better number two, all this stuff. And it's it's so interesting to me how and of course, like once he does it now and you guys win, everything now flips to like all I've now heard is like, you know, for example, Giannis and Kevin Durant are, are are top two and nobody's even close. And it's like, I get it why why you like need to get the championship to like earn, I guess, that next tier of respect. But like for you, who's somebody who's internal, do you like view him any differently? Or like do you view like your team or how you guys have come together any differently now that you've like gotten over that hump? No, I mean not at all, I would say. I think it's funny because media in general, and look, there's good and bad, right? Like at the end of the day, I know enough about the business of the NBA to understand that the media is needed. The media needs storylines. They need to feed the fans things. Fans want to be a part of it. And the media getting an inside track or what they think is an inside track is like an important inside visual for fans to see. And I understand like everything about that for the most part, but it's always unique because I think you can tell a lot about, you know, a team and a player specifically based off of if they're reacting to the outside media or not. And like Giannis has never been reactive to that. Obviously he wanted to have some respect on his name and be considered one of the best players in the world. He won two back-to-back MVPs, but at the end of the day, win an MVP his goal was to win games and I think that's what I've seen and I've been fortunate you know I was around Damian Lillard for three years and I've been around Giannis for three years they're both unique in the sense of they don't let the media dictate what they do or don't do or the accolades that they're trying to achieve they're trying to win basketball games and they're trying to do it in the best way they know how for Dame it's a little bit more on scoring and shooting and trying to be the guy that the other team has to stop for Giannis, it's a little bit of an all-around everything. You know, he knows he's got to score, but he knows he's got to pass to make his teammates better. He knows he's got to defend and defend multiple positions, and he does it at the highest of levels. And I would say after winning a championship, none of that's changed. He's still in the gym late at night shooting because he feels like he needs to work on shooting and become a better shooter. And I think his jump shots improved on the three years I've been here. It looks more fluid. It looks more smooth. He's been more confident shooting them. Um but I think the only thing that does change internally after you win it is a little bit more confidence. You know what I mean? And you can kind of feel that in the sense of we all believed we were good enough to win a championship, but believing you're good enough to win a championship and actually winning one are two really different things. And now that we've been fortunate to win one, I would say the confidence level of, okay, we've been there. What did we do wrong that we can improve on? Because we have to be better than we were last year in order to win it. You look at all the teams, you look at you guys, you look at the Lakers, you look at the Nets, all these teams have revamped. They have more star power. They have more firepower. They're better than they were last year. So it's not going to be good enough to just be as good as we were last year and expect to win. Um, So how do you improve? But knowing, hey, we've been there before. We've dealt with the media. We've dealt with adversity in these situations. And, you know, we've stuck together through it all. And that's kind of 
what's kind of held us together as a core group, I would say. Yeah. You mentioned that ever since you've been in Milwaukee, you guys have been contenders. Uh, and the friend of you would say that that's not by accident. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked, we've talked a little bit about your teammates. I want to put you on, on the spot here for a sec. We, <laughs> yes. uh, we have a lot of like young, younger players that are tuned into the podcast are part of the uh, long shot community, if you will. Yeah. You have a very unique basketball trajectory because you were an incredible, you were the absolute guy in, in high school and, that's that's like likely the case with most NBA players. You went on to Notre Dame. We'll, we'll talk about the baseball stuff later. But you went on to Notre Dame. You have an incredible individual career and from a winning standpoint, uh, you know, career at, at at Notre Dame as well. And still, you've kind of just like found your way to just always take that next step. And you know, I, I'm watching you compete in the NBA finals and you had an unbelievable final series, but the entire playoffs and really your entire career, you know, when you've had a, a meaningful role is I feel like what you bring to the table best and most is that you just impact winning and all the in-between areas. And it's not that, you know, you're going to hit 10 threes, but you're going to hit the one that matters. You're going to get the rebound that matters. You're going to make the defensive rotation that matters. You're going to do all those little things. If you need to drive and spray and create on a possession or two, you, you're capable of doing that. And you just find this way to like win between the margins. Is that is that something that's just kind of always come to you? Because you you were like that the guy with the ball in your hands for, for a lot of your career also. Or is it something of a skill that you kind of developed? Well, first, I wish you were a GM. Because if Ball GM saw me the same way you just explained, I'd be in a pretty pretty good position. Not that oh, yeah. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, I learned it when I went from high school to college. Like, if you look at – in high school, I was definitely the guy with our old AU program, the Magic. I was definitely the guy. Um, but I was never really seen as – a standout basketball player because of baseball, right? So baseball was always what people thought I was going to end up going towards. And when I got to college, I would say Notre Dame was not known for playing freshmen, right? Like we've always been known for having an older team. Coach Bray loves to coach. And at that time we're in the Big East, right? And that was known as a physical, big, brutal season league. And so he liked playing those seasoned guys. So those guys who were 20, 21, 22, sometimes 23 years old. And so when I got to Notre Dame early on, even from some of the guys within my team um, who weren't actually didn't end up being very impactful with our team, but it was kind of an unwritten thing like, hey, you're going to probably sit out your first year, first year and a half, two years because Coach Bray doesn't do it that way. And I mean, you know me, I'm competitive and basketball has always been kind of the thing I've been most passionate about, um, even though baseball, I may have had a higher trajectory in. And so I wanted to find a way to get on the floor. And that's kind of all I figured out how to do my freshman year. I didn't start, but I played in every game, the first, you know, five, 10 games. And then by the beginning of league play, I was a starter and it was just finding ways to impact winning, like you said. And so from an early on, whether it was making a three, whether it was driving, I mean, we go through my Notre Dame career. I joke with Coach Bray about it when I go back to school. My freshman year, it was, you know, when you're open, shoot the ball. 
my sophomore year, I started off shooting poorly. It was like, you shouldn't shoot the ball. You should drive and kick and play defense and do all the other stuff and use your athleticism. My junior year was, ah, okay, do a little bit of both. And then finally my senior year, I was a stretch power forward. I was, a, I was playing the small, like, small power forward position before that was even a thing. And so when you look at my trajectory to the NBA, I'm not, I'm not going to be a power forward. Like that wasn't great for my individual like success at the next level, but I wanted to find a way to impact winning. And I think when it all boils down for me specifically in my NBA career, impacting winning is what gets me on the floor, what gets me a role, what gets me to be 30 plus minutes a game in the NBA finals. And am I going to, like you said, make 10 threes? No, I'm not you. Am I going to make 10 threes if I get 10 open threes? Yeah, maybe. But like, that's I I was going to say, don't do that. Don't do that. You're very (laughs) capable of making 10 threes. I don't want to hear that. For sure. But like, for me, it's about just trying to be a well-rounded basketball player that can help impact winning. And I think as I've gone throughout my NBA career, it took a little more time. My first two years in Portland, I barely played. My third year, I was the only guy on the team to play all 82 games and every game in the playoffs. And I think it was I was fortunate to find coaches, Coach Stotts, Coach Bud, who found ways to integrate me because they knew I would impact winning in some capacity. They didn't always know what it was going to be on a nightly basis, but they knew it was going to happen. And for me, that's kind of how I've made my mark in the NBA. You uh, not only are you capable of hitting 10 threes, like Duncan said, but you're also very capable of keeping him from hitting 10 threes. Uh, I think you're, I think you're one of the best guys in the league at guarding him. I mean that, and I don't know if it's because there's a personal relationship. You maybe you know his game a little bit better. You know his tendencies, uh, but I think you block his shot more than anybody else in the league. Do you have any tricks that you're willing to share? No, I don't. Have don't any expose tricks at all. me. Don't expose uh, me. I was gonna say I don't have any tricks at all because for all those youngsters watching the pod, they might be competing against them someday. I don't want to give That's up my competitive fine. advantage that makes me valuable or his Fair competitive enough. advantage as a friend. I appreciate but, that. No, I think look for me, like kind of like Duncan said, it's I'm trying to find a way to impact winning, and it happens to be seen on Duncan more than others because we are friends and because we have a AU coach who loves to post stuff about him and I playing against each other. And, you know, you obviously know we have a relationship and all that. So I would say the funny part about it is I do that to a lot of guys. I think a lot of guys, I learned guarding Damon CJ my first few years in practice, like you got to find ways to get over a screen or you got to find ways to anticipate where your person you're the guy you're guarding kyp we call it know your personnel you got to find where they like to shoot and so for me it's just kind of about that anticipation and fortunately and unfortunately depending who you're talking to on this pod me or duncan um it's it's very difficult for me to block duncan's shot if he's coming to his left shoulder because he's got such a high release and he's six eight and i'm not but if i can try to force him to come off the other way to the right shoulder just like any right-handed shooter like that it's easier for me to get and i don't always get a finger on it i just try to uh, make him feel uncomfortable when he's shooting because he's one of those guys who you know if he's got daylight and he has the look at the shot he jumps high he's got a high release there's not a whole lot you can do about it um he's just going to make it or miss it and so i just try to find ways to whomever i'm guarding whether james harden's a lefty well he loves to take that step back right well guess what have you seen him take many step backs left? Not really. When he goes left, it's all the way to the basket. And so for us, I know I got two trees back there in Giannis and Brooke. I'm 
not going to be the guy that's forcing him right. I'm going to try to force him left, which seems counterintuitive because he's a lefty, but he loves that step back right. So just knowing your personnel has always been part of my MO as a defender. You you do have great technique, but it's it's very clearly the extra motivation that inspires you <laughs> to not let me uh, get in the open looks when you're guarding me, and I, I won't hear anything else. Uh, you actually you, you got into it a little bit right there, talking about kind of like different personnel. But I, I kind of, if you will, I'd love to hear you unpack defense a little more because you've done it to me before, and you know you have a really interesting way of of simplifying defense and it's actually something like your words had had helped me in terms of like you know sometimes you you get out there and you're guarding an NBA player and you just feel like hopeless in a way because they're so talented guys at this level are so talented and they have such great ability but for you you helped me kind of boil it down to like okay simplify it to down to like this guy likes to do this try to just take away this and and I think and then watching you play and use that effectively like you're such a solid defender like you're 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 always utilizing angles you're utilizing your strength you're you're playing the offense into kind of like your world if you can just talk a little bit more about that and how you kind of go into like prepping for defensive assignments yeah I would say you know first and foremost you're 100% right like the NBA talent, I think, sometimes is underrated. I mean, I know we're the best in the world, and I know fans know that, but, like, I think sometimes guys look at, like, a you who's pegged as a shooter. Well, against anybody aside from the NBA talent, you're much more than a shooter. And, like, when you get coming off pin downs and you can curl, like, you can finish in the lane. You can finish over people. You can hit I'll, a mid-range. I'll, I'll put something on somebody. You know, I'm not yeah, you. I'm not you. I'm not you with 44 inch vertical. But you know, I, every now and then I'll get. I got the rim grazer package for 100. Percent, 100. Percent. I have a notification alert for when Duncan Robinson dunks, and it it goes off at least five times a month. But oh, five times say, a year. <laughs> yeah, probably more than five times a year category. We'll take it though. For yeah. sure. Uh, I would say, for me, like. It's about knowing that, A, guys are so talented, they have second, third, and fourth moves. But at the end of the day, I want to play to my strengths and to their weaknesses. So knowing both of those things, you mentioned strength. I know strength, especially at my size, is something that, no pun intended, is a strength of mine, right? So how do I make sure that when it comes to angles or when it comes to defending somebody – I find a way to have contact with them. So whether I'm defending Kyrie Irving or, you know, Devin Booker in the NBA finals, whatever it is, I want to make sure that they feel me and I'm having an impact on their lack of comfort, driving the basketball, shooting the basketball, whatever it is. Right. And then knowing what their strengths are, you know, it's, it's the basketball IQ side of the game for me. So knowing that, Devin Booker or Chris Paul always try to find a way to get to an elbow and try to find a way to hit a mid-range jump shot, like force them into the trees. Know that the strengths of our team defense versus what their strengths are as a player. And so when it comes down to defending for me, I try to simplify it to your point to like one to two things. And it's what their strong hand is or what way they like to go best. I try to take that away. And then I try to know where they like to shoot from. So if it's you, I know they run you off 17 different screens in Miami before you're going to take a jump shot, but you're going to try to find a way to be behind the three-point line. So 
and somehow you have a way of getting extended from a screen that isn't a travel that is 17 feet away from where the screen just happened. And so I know I'm going to have to take a few more steps before I gather and jump. If it's a Devin Booker, I know he loves to pump fake. So if I can stay connected with him when he's driving left, he's going to try to pump fake. And if I don't go for it, if I'm content with being solid and not trying to get a block, but trying to just make a shot difficult for him, if he makes a contested mid-range two, I tip my hat to him because at the end of the day, the way the NBA is going offensively, if it's not a three and it's not a layup, it's tough to survive on long-range two-point jump shots. Now, I will say in the playoffs, a lot more mid-range shots are taken, but it's tough to win games off that on a consistent basis. So if I know that and I can simplify, hey, force him left, force him right, and know where he wants to shoot from, then I can do my job to the level that I need to do it. And, you know, hopefully Coach Bud doesn't rip me out of the game for letting a guy go by me. Uh, I love that breakdown. I, I also want to say what also makes you a, a really good defender is that you're an incredible athlete. And this is something I wanted to ask you about. But, you know, when you were coming out in the, the combine, I think you had the highest uh, vertical in, in your draft class, correct? In my class, yeah. Yeah, 44 inches, uh, I believe, was the number. Yet somehow when I was watching that draft coverage, and I think still you know, when I watch mm -hmm. you play or hear a commentator or whatever talk about you, or when I'm watching you participate in Saturday night dunk contest, still the word sneaky athletic is thrown around. Sneaky <laughs> athletic. Yeah. Does that, like, when you hear that, do you just laugh at that, or is it like, disrespectful like where where does or is it just trying to like roll off your your shoulder at this point that it's still sneaky that you have the highest vertical in your class and for some reason it's still sneaky yeah i mean look it's always going to put a chip on my shoulder at the end of the day but um you know stereotypes are a thing they're a thing in our profession right like at the end of the day i've heard you know people in our games commentators in our games on espn or tnt if I get stuck in the lane and I turn the ball over, they say, oh, that's that's not his game. You should stay behind the three-point line. And it's like I'm not even known as like just like a straight-up shooter. I can shoot the ball, but to your point, I'm known as being able to kind of do a bunch of different stuff. And so I think for me it's just about if I can take people by surprise with my athleticism, then that's an advantage for me because if people don't think I'm as athletic as I am, you know, I'm going to have an advantage on going by them one direction. I'm going to have an advantage on defending them and trying to block their shot or um, stay with them as they're trying to drive. Like I think most of the guys within our league and coaches and management, and they all know that my athleticism is more than quote unquote expectations based off of the eye test. But um, I think that's just a testament to the fact that, uh, you know, common sense isn't always that common. Speaking of you not uh, just living behind the three-point line, I watched in preparation to talk to you tonight, I spent uh, 30 minutes of my day today watching uh, your dunk highlights from 2018. It was like a collection of your best dunks. I think half of them were backdoor cuts. You yeah. might be the best back cutter in the NBA. Where does where does that come from? Is that just a natural feel that you have? It's amazing. Honestly, I, seriously, it's a 30-minute video. Go, I encourage people to go watch it. 15 minutes, are you getting backdoor dunks? Uh, look, I think it's, it's to Duncan's point. How do I find ways to impact? And I think in the NBA, 
there's a lot of, especially in the regular season, there's a lot of defense that is played aggressively or not aggressively. But either of them, you can kind of take advantage from a back cut standpoint. You know, if it's aggressive, they're going for a steal. It's kind of a quick little move and you're good. If it's not aggressive, they're not always paying attention to you. Their head's watching the ball and you can kind of cut behind their head. And I think for me, as a guy that doesn't always have the ball in my hands, I mean, look, we got Giannis, we got Chris, we got Drew. We got guys there that have the ball in hands a lot. I got to find ways to score the basketball outside of just catch and shoot three pointers. And at the end of the day, that's just kind of the way it works in the NBA. You have to be a threat to score the ball. If you want to be on the floor, very few guys in the NBA can stay on the floor without being able to score the basketball. I mean, you got a few defensive specialists, but at the end of the day, even them have had to learn how to shoot the ball or at least be a threat to shoot the ball uh, in order to stay on the floor. And so for me, uh, I needed that second dynamic in my first few years in Milwaukee to be a threat as opposed to just being behind the three-point line. Do you uh, do you have a favorite in-game dunk as an NBA player? Because I watched a lot of them in that 30-minute video. There are some good Ooh. ones. I would say there's one – there's probably two, two favorite ones. One of them was in Golden State um, two years ago. I was on the left wing. And I drove middle and I went off the right foot. It was kind of like a wrong one. I went off the right foot and I just threw it down on my right hand. Um, and I think it t- caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, and it was kind of fluid and it was off the dribble, it was off the bounce. It was something that, again, not many people thought I could do. And then I would say there was a putback one I had with my left hand um, that came off of a rebound. Uh, shout out to Chris Middleton. I think he missed that shot for me on purpose. And it was one where like I got out pretty high and I caught it way back here. Uh, and it was pretty ferocious. Was that a Charlotte against Charlotte? Yeah, yeah I, I remember that one. That was in that video. Couple, yeah. uh, couple of things for you there. One, Pat, I want you to know that uh, Davis has spent the last 72 hours in preparation for this interview, like he does every interview, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to the point where he's poured through every highlight tape, every article, Everyone. basically every either any sort of media that's ever been published about you, oh, uh, yeah. Davis has has seen in some capacity to the point where yeah. his, his eyes literally start to bleed. Uh, yeah. so, sh- so shout out to Davis for that. Just high I've level preparation. I've seen way too much of your face in the last two days, Pat. I'm, I'm sick of it already. Uh, uh, the second point is, Pat, you missed an incredible opportunity when Davis asked you about back cutting to shout out uh, Middlesex Magic thumb down backdoor play <laughs> that, that they used to run. Uh, guaranteed guaranteed dunk or layup, depending on the personnel. Uh, but but shout out to uh, Coach Michael Crotty for the classic thumb down. It's a little <laughs> you know drive middle, spin back. Looks like you're kind of running out of room and then just a back cut. I can only imagine. We were different years, but I can only imagine you got a lot of mileage off that play. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think Coach Crotty instilled the alley-oop portion of that play during my junior year. Um, so I think the backdoor play used to be because he had a lot of guys that could shoot on their team. And Crotty Sr. obviously needed something to switch it up because they were overplaying. Uh, when I got there, we decided to switch it from just the backdoor bounce pass to like throw it over the top. 
Ah, uh, I, I see what you had to do there. So you, you had to bring me down a level. Uh, right. For those of you who, who don't know the backstory, Pat and I grew up in the same area, uh, played for the same AU, AAU program, the legendary. I think it's legendary at this point, yeah, I would say. absolutely. Uh, Middlesex Magic, uh, founded by Mike Crotty Sr., now run by Mike Crotty Jr., uh, Mike Crotty Jr., who is both a, a dear friend to the two of us. Um, but yeah, what I'm now hearing is that that version of, of the play that you ran is far different than the one that, that we ran, largely due <laughs> no, to no, no, saying, athletic I'm capabilities. The, I'm saying at the end of the day, two points were two points. We just had different ways of getting the two points. Yeah, you know, I, I like to tell people, I'll, I'll start to dunk or I'll start to catch alley-oops when they start becoming worth three. And, and for now, yeah. they're still worth two. So, you know, well, what's the point? Uh, it's, just a, it's just a loud two, basically, is all it is. <laughs> uh, I, I actually, I want to talk high school just time period because i think we're now at the point where your high school career is somewhat you know lore in that it's just been so well well documented i mean you're a gatorade player uh, of the year uh dominant basketball player but you kind of like came onto the scene late but but what didn't come onto the scene was was the baseball talent which was always there am i wrong in saying you were kind of clearly a more talented baseball player early on. Yeah. I mean, look, the easiest way to kind of sum it up is my senior year of baseball. I had already committed to Notre Dame to play two sports. Um, and as I went through my senior year of baseball, uh, the New York Yankees offered me 2 million bucks to get drafted in the second round, but I had to forego going to Notre Dame to play basketball. And so I think, you know, I was, I was an, an athlete. I wouldn't say I was like a pitcher, but I could throw really hard and I could make up for it with my athleticism. And, uh, you know, from a baseball standpoint, I could hit two back then. So if I didn't play basketball, I probably would have gone to college to be a hitter and a pitcher. Uh, but baseball was definitely the thing. Like throughout high school, you know, we played for the Magic AAU basketball wise, but AAU baseball wise, I was kind of a part of all of the, you know, perfect game top 50 showcases and I had teams that would just take me on the weekend to come down and play never had to go to practice played for a team out of Virginia one time like just random things that were all the kind of higher level what you would see now is EYBL and AAU hoops was like me in baseball um and so it was definitely what it was what everyone always said I remember I had a guy um in the parking lot my senior year I just owned a no-hitter he stopped me in the parking lot. Our athletic director was like, hey, I have to introduce you to this guy. His son plays for the Washington Nationals. They're playing at Fenway Park tonight against the Red Sox. I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, it's a dream of mine to play pro sports. And he said, yeah, you know, um, Coach O'Leary's told me a little bit about you. That was our AD. Um, and you're going to Notre Dame to play two sports. And I was like, yeah, you know, I am. I'm really excited about it or whatever. And he goes, that's probably the worst idea you can have. And I was like, I was kind of taken back by it. And he was like, if you go to Notre Dame to play two sports, one of those sports is going to suffer. You'll never amount to be a pro in either of them. You should stick with baseball. What I saw today, like baseball, you could be a first round guy. You could be a guy that gets there really fast, accelerates with majors. And I just vividly remember standing there for like 35 minutes and like, you know, us, like we're pretty nice individuals. So I wasn't going to tell the guy to like screw off. Like I was just like, yep. Yeah, oh yeah. No, that's a great point. Makes sense. Whatever. And like 35 minutes of him just saying, yeah, you're an idiot for going to Notre Dame and play two sports. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, 
buddy, how about this? How about I play, you know, 10 plus years in the NBA, then I go play baseball. How's that <laughs> yeah. sound, pal? Uh, I've, I've also, I've also watched you throw a football 75 yards. Uh, so, I mean, you, you just got them all covered, but I, I want to ask about that decision as an 18 year old kid to have $2 million on the table and say, ah, actually, I'm, I'm good on that. I'm going to go play, uh, I'm going to go play basketball and baseball for free. So, the way I looked at it, my dad helped me out a lot with it um, as far as thinking through it. Uh, but the way I kind of looked at it was if they were willing to offer me that now, if that's what they thought my baseball potential was right then, then if I continue to progress, it would be more later on. And I think for me, I saw my ability to progress as a two-sport athlete was best suited on like the same campus. Like how hard would it have been if I tried to play basketball at Notre Dame and then go down to spring training in the spring and play baseball for the Yankees minor league system, or, you know, getting an education was important to me going to Notre Dame playing college basketball was something I'd always dreamed about. Um, So if I knew I wanted to play college basketball from a baseball standpoint, I thought my progression would be done a lot better if it was on campus where you know, I vividly remember my freshman year, we played Marquette at Notre Dame on CBS on one of those Saturday showcase games at like two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, it was the first game I scored 20 plus points. It was against like, you know, Jay Crowder, Vander Blue, uh, DJO, all those guys. And at 7 PM that night, I was throwing a bullpen in the indoor facility uh, on campus at Notre Dame and just, being able to do that, like being able to literally do both sports in the same day. And it really helped me as a baseball and a basketball player from a progression standpoint. So you're a psychopath is my takeaway from, yeah, from that story. <laughs> yeah. at, so at, at what point do you feel justified in that decision? Like, was there ever any doubt? I mean, being what, 17, 18 years old and having $2 million on the table, I get it. And your your explanation is beautiful as to why you choose Notre Dame. Do you immediately feel justified when you show up on that campus and you're like, wow, this is amazing. I made the right decision. Or are there times where you're like, hey, it'd be nice to have you know $2 million in my bank account. And I do like baseball a lot. Yeah. No, I think honestly, I was so busy based off the story I just told you. I never got time to think about it at Notre Dame, with, especially yeah. when you include academics. But I will say as my college career progressed and I went and played in the Cape Cod league, but Duncan knows we had summer school with basketball. Right. So I only played in the Cape Cod league for like three or four weeks and I played really well in the three or four weeks, but the coach was kind of pissed that I left after three or four weeks. And so, and then like my junior year, I told all the teams, the MLB teams, like, Hey, I'm going to go back for my senior year of basketball. I'd still love to be drafted but I'm going to go back. And so I was a projected first round guy in baseball after my junior year of college, based off what I did in Cape Cod league and based off of kind of the raw talent I had, but I dropped to be a fourth round draft pick. And I would say that's when it starts to think a little bit, right? Cause I go from a potential of making $2 million after my senior year of high school to making 400 grand being a fourth round draft pick. That's a $1.6 million hit, but I was fortunate to be drafted into the NBA. I was fortunate you know, to get to where I am today. But I would say definitely, you know, when you don't play your first year in the NBA, when I barely played my second year in the NBA, you start to think like, am I going to make it? Was baseball the right choice? Um, Did I make a mistake? But 
you can't really allow yourself to think that because at the end of the day, my dream being a kid was to be drafted into professional sports. And I didn't want to give up on the opportunity of basketball coming out of high school just for, you know, baseball. Is, uh, I noticed you said the dream was to be drafted. Is there still some hope to play both? And and not that you, you know, we need to have any spoilers out here, but I mean, I remember a couple summers ago, you were still throwing bullpens. Is it something that you still have on your mind? Yeah, I think it would be cool. I mean, I think it's one of those things where right now, I think there's still improvement I can have within my NBA career. Um, you know, when you look at it, this is, I'm going into my seventh year as an NBA player. It's only the seventh year I've had of focusing solely on basketball. Um, and the things that I'm doing athletically, not to throw any shade at, you know, baseball players, there are a lot of athletic baseball players out there, but I think as a pitcher, I might be as athletic, if not more athletic than the majority of, you know, MLB pitchers. So as long as, you know, my arm stays in shape and I'm keeping it loose on the side, I think maybe, you know, you get 10, 12, 13 years in the NBA, it wouldn't be terrible to go, you know, pick up the rosin bag and loosen up the arm for the Milwaukee Brewers and kind of get a revenge tour on that first pitch that I had. I, uh, <laughs> I, I love that answer. I think it would be cool. Pat, it would be pretty cool if, uh, you know, we got a presenting sponsor for our podcast, which we still don't have, <laughs> by the way, so shameless plug for that. I think playing two professional sports uh, falls into an entirely different category <laughs> of something that would be cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate the approach, though. I mean, selfishly, I would love to see it, and uh, maybe somewhat partially, I think you could do it. Granted, I don't really have a, a whole lot of you know major league intel uh, as to what it takes to, to cut at that level, but I certainly would never count you out, that's for sure. I, I appreciate the support, and, and you promise you're not just saying that so that I stop trailing you on pin downs and trying to block your <laughs> shot. No, no, I mean that straight from the heart. Uh, <laughs> speaking speaking of, of from the heart, this is a beautiful transition here. I, I want to talk a little bit about some of your off-court endeavors. Uh, you know, one thing I've always admired about you is that you have not taken your opportunity as being a professional basketball player for granted in any way. And I've always admired how you've really used your platform to not only impact others, but also connect with other people and leverage your position uh, to advance maybe your interests or learn about new things or uh, expand your platform in other ways. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of how the different areas in which you've done that. I know you have a foundation. I know you're really passionate about, you know, some of your, your real estate stuff you're doing off the court as well. Uh, and then also some of the stuff you, you've maybe done in the, the player association. I know you're involved in that as well. Uh, so, you know, whatever you want to take on and, and tackle, uh, I'll, I'll just let you run. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, I always said, uh, I was fortunate to become pro athlete, uh, you know, I'd use my platform to kind of give back to the people and places that helped get me there um, and for that next generation of youth athlete. Uh, so I'd say from a foundation standpoint, that's kind of where my heart lies for it. It's, hey, sports have done a lot for me. I wouldn't have had the chance to become an MLB player out of high school if it wasn't for sport. I wouldn't have a chance to have gotten a Notre Dame education if it wasn't for sport. I wouldn't have a chance to sit in front of 
and meet a lot of the great people that we get to meet within the NBA if it wasn't for sport. And so uh, I've all seen the things sports have done for my friends who haven't become a professional athlete. You know, the translatable life skills, the hard work, the teamwork, the leadership, the things that translate to the business world or to the philanthropic world or to the doctoral world, whatever it might be. And so I think for me, um, kind of giving back to that next generation of youth sports and doing it, you know, via different camps and clinics, doing it via different, you know, uh, court refurbishments, doing it via different mentoring and scholarship opportunities. I would say um, it's something that I've tried to grow since kind of like my second year in the NBA um, and try to continue to give back through my foundation and uh, support that next generation of youth athlete because I think youth sports are becoming quite a big business. And I would say, look, I run a real estate development business. When you're running a business, the goal is to continue to grow the business. And I think from a youth sports standpoint, the kids' best interests should probably be up top. The growing of a business shouldn't trump some kid's dream or aspiration um, because it should be about that kid. It should be about the youth within the sport, not the business of youth sports. And so uh, that's kind of a narrative that I'm trying to rewrite a little bit with my foundation. And then, um, you know, my dad was a general contractor. So I grew up working on his job sites, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th grade, you know, hauling lumber, cleaning dumpsters, carrying sheetrock up the stairs, you know, stuff that wasn't glamorous and quite frankly, wasn't fun, but you know, it taught me hard work. It taught me some things and it showed me on a firsthand basis, you know, the projects he got hired to redevelop or renovate. Um, it showed me the difference between when he got hired and what they looked like when they were done. And so when I got drafted into baseball after my junior year of college, uh, you know, I didn't know how long pro sports were going to last. Obviously you hope they last forever, but you know, I was a fourth round draft pick in baseball. And then fast forward to my senior year of college, I was a second round draft pick in the NBA. So um, I wanted to invest my money via the stuff I learned in Notre Dame into something I had a education in, some passion for, things that I grew up around. And so um, I flipped the home with my dad and I kind of saw the financial side of it and how it worked um, on the back end and on the business side. And I continued to kind of just grow in that range and learn from a bunch of different mentors that I've been fortunate to have um, and that I've met via my platform. And, uh, you know, I've learned, you know, flipping houses was great for me, but at the end of the day, we're fortunate to have a stream of income, right? We have a day job, quote unquote, a day job that compensates us very well to do what we love to do. So how can I plan for the future? How can I blow, how can I grow a portfolio, a real estate portfolio that will generate cash flow for hopefully generations to come? And as I continued to, you know, grow that, um, there was just organic interest amongst teammates within, you know, my team back in Portland and my team here in Milwaukee. And um, so I just wanted to start to create something where, you know, I can bring on other professional athletes. I can bring on, you know, some of the mentors that I've had in the business world and I can take on investors and show them how it works, how it operates, give them a stream of income when their careers are done. Because I do think the business of pro sports is unique. We make all of the money that we're expected to live off of in the first five to 15 years of your professional careers, if you're lucky to play for 15 years. 
And then that has to last you for the next 45, 50 years, 60 years, if we're, you know, God willing. And so for me, having an education and having some experience in the real estate development world and using some of the competitive advantages that I have, can I bring on professional athletes so that they have a stream of income when their careers are done so that there aren't those 30 for 30s out there that talk about how all pro athletes go broke um, and can I continue to grow a viable way for athletes to invest with me alongside me uh, in my real estate development company so that, um, you know, they're making a great amount of money even when their careers are done. Sounds like a pretty sound logic, pretty uh, impressive breakdown there. Yeah, I, wanna... I mean, look, look, Davis, I didn't go to Michigan like some of us on this right. pod, but at the right. end of the day, uh, you know, Notre Dame treated me well and its alumni have been great in mentoring me along the business path. We would that never is, throw shade it, at- It's okay you didn't go to Michigan, man. You know, there's people need to be in second place too. You know, Notre Dame's great. <laughs> Jeez. Just is kidding. That you guys- That's hey. actually a joke. I actually want to get out in front of that because I actually dislike like the Michigan elitist kind of mentality that, that naturally all Michigan people carry. Uh, I have a ton of respect for the University of Notre Dame uh, and all all universities, uh, honestly, and small colleges. You know, I attended Boo. one of those as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm off the, the Michigan elitist stuff. That was just a, a timely joke. Anyways, Dave, what do you got? I wanted to ask about the the youth sport because I think you're spot on. And I think since we've all graduated high school, it's ramped up so much more where it's become a business like you've talked about. What I've also seen is that there's this increased pressure to push kids into one sport. It's like everything's become year round. Baseball's year round. Basketball's year round for like these 10 year old kids. It's like, if you want to play on these elite programs, you got to be there all year round. You are like the poster child. I think we need to be, make you the poster child of why dual sport athlete is really important. And in the NFL, they've started to talk about this too, right? Like Patrick Mahomes was a, you know, played everything in high school. Kyler Murray, baseball player. Like, I think there's so much value in being just an athlete. And you've talked about that a little bit in this conversation, but just being an athlete. Is there stuff that you consciously can lean on from baseball, from being a pitcher that helps you as a basketball player? Yeah, hundred percent. And I would say, look, before I even get into that, what you're talking about is exactly the reason or one of the main reasons I started a foundation to have our own programming, do our own, you know, youth sports stuff is because any specialization pitch to a kid, I would argue that's younger than 15, 16 years old, you can make the argument hey, if you play something 24-7, you're going to get better at it. Pardon my language, but no shit. Obviously, you're going to get better at something play it 24-7. But at that young of an age, it is not healthy for a kid to be specializing and using the same body part before it's fully developed on a 24-7 basis. And what I think is the youth sports conglomerates and businesses and programs that are pitching that advantage they're hiding behind that idea that, hey, you'll get better if you do this 24-7, 365. But what they're really seeing is, hey, if you want to be on this elite baseball team in the spring, you have to play with us in the summer. You have to play with us in the fall. You have to play with us in the winter if you want to make it because we know we can make more money in the summer, this fall, and the spring. And now it is a year-round thing that they're you know making money. They're, it's a monetary benefit. So I think it's a monetary bias. I don't think – the kid's best interest is at the top. It, hey, how to grow my youth sports business? 
well, yeah. okay, I understand you're trying to grow a business, but you're trying to grow the business at the expense of what's best for this next generation of athletes. And I think to your point and to expand on what you said, you know, I played football in high school. Like I wanted to be a quarterback back in the day. And, you know, I played baseball obviously up until, you know, six years ago, seven years ago. And I think the things that I learned from each of those sports have translated to my basketball career, the toughness that I learned that I needed in football when, you know, me and Duncan were in friggin' 30, 25 degree weather on Thanksgiving. And I had to try to figure out a way to throw a damn football 45 yards down the field while I'm getting hit by nine kids from, you know, Brockton, Massachusetts, or, you know, coming from a baseball standpoint, when I walked the first three batters of an inning and it's the bottom of the seventh inning in high school and we're only up one run and I got no outs with three guys on, how the hell am I going to mentally get out of that jam when it's just me on the mound? So I would say the toughness I learned in football, the mental toughness I learned in baseball, because it is a sport that if you fail seven out of 10 times at a batter, as a batter, you're a Hall of Famer. You know, that's, you got to learn to deal with failure in baseball. And that's, a, that can be mentally grueling. So I think for me, and it goes far beyond just those two things, but the things that I learned from other sports, the athleticism, hand-eye coordination, the overall like generic health of using different muscle groups at different times of the year. Um, I think it's a big reason why I am where I am today. I, I absolutely love that answer. I'm not quite the, the spokesperson for cross training like you are, uh, cause I, I don't have the accolades, but I, I will say I, I'm a huge uh, proponent for cross training as well. And just playing, playing everything. I also want to point out Pat, I think the, the reason Davis asked that question is, I don't know if you knew this, but Davis is at a little bit of a different point in his life than, than you and I, you know, he just got married. I think that was more of a research based question. Yeah. I think he's thinking about having some kids here soon, you know, some Davis <laughs> juniors running around and really wants to, to figure out the best trajectory, uh, for his potential offsprings I, I think that's where that question came from but I, I gotta say you absolutely crushed it uh for an answer hey if davis if davis jr davis senior and you know little uh princess davis if you have a girl <laughs> want to come uh and play and be a part of you know my foundation foundation programs they are more than welcome i'm in consider it done People, people helping people. It's what the long shot's all about. Powerful uh, stuff. Powerful stuff. Pat, we have uh, taken way too much of your time. Way you too much. You got a big uh, preseason bout against the Jazz. I think I recognize that hotel. Is that the? Uh, yeah. Is that the Utah Hotel? Yeah. Grand American. Looks about Grand American. Beautiful. Uh, we've taken away too much of your time. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're you're coming on again at some point. I just want to let you know that uh, in we, person. We, yeah, we've involuntarily signed you up for a repeat appearance on the long shot in person. Just letting you know. Yeah, look, maybe we can do an in-person one at, you know, a court we refurbished via my foundation or a job site that we're developing via my real estate Whoa. company. I mean, look, I don't want to be the guy to shamelessly plug some of the things that I'm doing. But since it's TBD on when you guys actually let me come back on, since it was kind of, you know, in and out there at the beginning of letting me come on the first time. I'm just going to throw that in so the viewers know the next time I'm on, if it's not at one of those two places, it's on you. Fair enough. Wow. We, uh, we shoulder that responsibility proudly. All right, Pat, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, actually, I'll see you in a week here when we play you guys. Hey, we will. And I'll be trying to D you up. You'll be trying to make some shots. And uh, maybe it'll be, <laughs> wait, it'll be a wait, nice wait, episode wait. for the you, long shot pod. You're saying I don't I – don't, 
D anybody up? I don't try on defense. Is that what that was? Is that some shade thrown at me on my defensive presence? Hey, all I'm saying is my job to defensively guard you is all I know that's going to take place. I don't know what your defensive assignment is. As you said earlier, you, you know, Jimmy doesn't call you and tell you who you're defending right away. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll let that one slide. All right. Have a fantastic evening. I'll uh, talk to you here soon.